Welcome to another episode of Graffiti Talk Radio. I'm your host, Bomber Clot. I got my host, Big Diesel, on the phone. Where you at, homie? Hey, what's up? Uh, today's guest is Gorilla Comics celebrated true crime authors such classics as Supreme Team, the Street Legend series, Prison Stories, Rayful Edmonds, and the White Boy Rick story, and many others. Currently writing for many publications and media outlets, please welcome Mr. Seth Ferrante to Graffiti Talk Radio. Welcome, sir. Hey, what's up, man? How are you doing? Good. How you been? How you doing? Yeah, you know, just working, uh, traveling around. You know, after uh, doing 21 years in prison, man, it's, it's it's nice to be out. It's nice to be able to travel around the country. I mean, I, I know a lot of people say bad things about our country or whatever. You know, it could be better, but I think, you know, a lot of stuff, man, it, it's pretty good. I, I was traveling on the East Coast this weekend over Thanksgiving, so, you know, I'm, uh, you know, living it up, living the life of Pablo Escobar, right? <laughs> That's what's up, man. That's what's up. I, uh, I guess starting off, I guess, uh, where were you born? I, I was born in California. I grew up in California. I was basically a, a military brat. You know, my dad was a fighter pilot, so we moved all around. You know, so you, from, from a young age, I, I would say that, you know, I was kind of, uh, you know, enmeshed in, in, in different cultures, different places. We lived overseas. I lived in Germany and London, you know, East Coast, West Coast. So uh, I kind of grew up really uh, multicultural. Word, word, for sure, man. Um, I guess, how did you get into writing? Like, Well, I was, I used to do, you know, I want to say I was a writer before I went to prison, but you know, I used to yeah. mess around with poetry or, you know, different stuff like this. Nothing too serious. You know, I might have had some designs, but I never really, you know, put them into action. But once, you know, I was in prison with all that time, man, you just you got a lot of time to think and you got a lot of time to do stuff. So I was just trying to figure out, you know, what is something that I can do, you know, a career that I can start building in here, you know, that will translate yeah. for when I get outside because it's not a lot of options, man, when you're, when you're doing that kind of time. So, right. you know, I kind of, you know, I started taking college classes and it was mostly writing heavy, you know, and, and, you know, I kind of decided, I was like, man, this is something I can do. This is, you know, plus I've seen some of the other prison authors like George Jackson. I read George Jackson, Soledad Brother, a lot of the Mamiya, Abu Jamal stuff. And, uh, yeah. you know, any, any prison writers, I was reading their stuff and I was like, man, if these dudes can do it, I can too. Right. So, so, and what was your first book that you, um, I guess, published? Didn't you have to start your own publishing house? Yeah, in 2005, the first book I put out was Prison Stories. You know, I started right. Gorilla Convict from prison, you know, with the help of my wife who was on the street, and we put out right. Prison Stories. And that was right. my first book. And it, it's kind of like, uh, I wrote it as fiction, but it, it's kind of autobiographical about, you know, it kind of chronicles my, my first two years in prison and, and what was going on and, you know, what I was involved in and stuff like that. Right, right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I read the Street uh, Legends Volume 1. I mean, I'm a, like a fan of that book. I mean, I really love that book a lot. Um, same with the Supreme Team book. Um, I, I've glimpsed over the, the White Boy uh, Rip book. Um, it's pretty in-depth, too, as well, and, and that's what kind of we're going to focus on today on our episode. And um, I guess starting off, who was Henry Marzette, I guess? Was he like the godfather of Detroit at that time? Oh, I think, yeah, I think he was a, um, 
an ex-cop, you know, who kind of got into crime and involved in crime and, uh, you know, he used kind of like his, his police resources and then he went like full blown criminal. But you know, this is, you're probably talking like back, you know, like the sixties and seventies when, when this guy was kind of around. So, I mean, he was probably like, you know, one of the, one of the godfathers, one of the most powerful people at that time in Detroit. Was he, um, like considered like the first black godfather of Detroit? Yeah, I would I would say so, man. You know, historically, you know, I mean, yeah. a lot a lot of guys are really written about like into the seventies, you know, because really the urban gangster kind of stepped out, you know, like around the same, you know, when they were having the civil rights movement and the Black Power movement at the end of the sixties, and that's kind of like the same time, like all across the country, you know, because before even in the African American communities, basically the Italians ran ran all the crime, they ran all the vice, they ran all the drugs. You know, they would right. just have like one one guy in each neighborhood, you know, and and they, you know, and they they were like, you know, disposable to the mob. You know, if the guy didn't do what they said, you know, they wanted basically a puppet. And kind of with right. like, you know, the Black Panther and the whole, you know, movement for for equality and civil rights, a lot of the gangsters started stepping out in the seventies. That's why you see like this emergence of all these, you know, colorful characters because you know they basically stepped out and said, you know, this is our neighborhood. You know, yeah. I'm a gangster, I'm a criminal, I'm going to do all the stuff here, you know, and they basically, you know, wipe the mob out of their neighborhoods. That's crazy, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, after, he, you know, after, I guess, I don't know if he got arrested or he was in prison forever, but what happened What happened after that point? Wasn't there, like, uh, like a vacuum powers, I guess, a, pack, a, back, a power vacuum where two groups came out, like Murder Row Gang and some other groups? Yeah, I, w- I would say any any time, you know, any time when like a, you know, charismatic gangster or, or or kind of leader or godfather or Don Dada type figure, any time you know they go to prison or they get killed or anything, it's always kind of like a, a vacuum or a power struggle. Yeah. And you know, I know as you're going into the late seventies, I mean, you had all types of stuff because you know you had YBI Young Boys Incorporated and Butch Jones. In the late 70s, yeah. they, they started, you know, doing retail markets, you know, with packets of Coke and heroin and weed and stuff like that. And also at the same time, Pony Down. Pony Down was on the streets, you know, yeah, holding, yeah, yeah. holding stuff down. I was actually locked up with some of the dudes in Pony Down, you know, one of, one of the old heads. And he used to tell me, you know, ba- basically they were two competing crews back in that day. And it wasn't so much about the violence and, and killing people in territory. Because they did have beasts, but they were on two different sides of the city. But when they did have beasts, it was more about, you know, girls and, and you know, they were wearing clothes and, and trying to be who's the coolest and who's the flyest in the neighborhood or in Detroit or on the street. So a lot of the little beasts were more on that tip as opposed to territory. Yeah, because when these guys were back, you know, I mean, it, it was wide open. It was, you know, they were like the, the first of the uh, – because there was another transition, you know, it was a transition from kind of like the street gangs to the to the drug dealing organizations. That was another big transition, you know, in, in right, Detroit. Right. Yeah, Detroit, like YBI and Pony Dot, Pony Down, and some of these older crews. You know, they were kind of street gangs first, but they metamorphosized, you know, with the entrance of you know lots of drugs and, and lots of cocaine in the '80s into these big criminal yeah. organizations. No doubt. I mean, uh, who was Art Derrick? Art Derrick was like this real, real big. Uh, he he was this white dude, and he had a partner named Sam Curry. 
his partner Sam Curry had no relation to the Curry brothers, but okay. you know, our our Derek was like a big weight dealer. Like these dudes had planes, you know, they they were flying stuff in to Detroit, you know, like a hundred keys at a time in the in the mid eighties, and they were basically feeding the city. And it's crazy because this dude, our Derek, being you know, he was this real big drug dealer. He was probably the the biggest drug dealer in Detroit besides. Uh, you know, the dude that supplied YDI, so that's for steel. He was another big drug dealer. But, uh, yeah, 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 you know, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like Art Derek, you know, he ended up, he only did maybe about six years. You know, he cooperated with the government. But, yeah. you know, it, it, it's kind of funny as you see, you know, some of the people that come after in the amount of time they had, and then you see the people who, the guy who was basically at the top of the rung, you know, and he did like six years, which is crazy. Right, right. And then, um, how did uh, how did, I guess how did White Boy Rick get started with the Curry Brothers? I mean, I mean, I've always wondered that. Well, you know, with White Boy Rick, you know, he was recruited at at fourteen years to to actually be a uh, you know to work for the work as an agent. You know, his dad, yeah, 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 yeah. His dad was an informant, you know, for the FBI or had been. You know, cause his dad used to sell guns and had, like, different hustles and stuff like that, right? And right. at one time, yeah. like, as it was going into the 80s, you know, and they had all these crack crews emerging, especially on the east side, you know, like Curry Brothers, you know, Maserati, Rick, Demetrius Holloway, eventually Best Friends, you know. Yeah. Rick Rick was a kid. He was out, you know, they lived right on the east side. They lived right in the hood, and he was out there. He used to play basketball, you know, with, like, all, all the relatives or all the runners, you know, and the little guys who worked you know, for these organizations. So, right. you know, when the cops came asking about these organizations to the dad, he didn't really know. So he turned to the son, you know, right. and that, that's how they did. They, they started, you know, the, the drug war, man, in America is, is real dirty the way they do stuff. And, you know, right then, you know, a lot of dudes want to call and say, white boy, Rick, he's a snitch, he's this, he's that. But I'm saying the kid was 14 years old. His dad was right yeah. there. His dad, like, approved, almost pushed him into that. You know what I'm saying? And, and I can't say as a 14-year-old kid, man, you might think you're doing the right thing. Maybe you're thinking, uh, you know, you're doing, like, some James Bond shit, like you're a spy yeah. or something. You <laughs> yeah, know, yeah, I mean, I mean, who knows, you know, what, what was going through his mind, you know. But, you know, they got him involved, and, uh, you know, he got closer and closer to the Curry gang. You know, his dad used to even do work. I talked to Johnny Curry, and Johnny Curry was telling me how Johnny Curry bought this big hall. I don't know the name of it. But he bought this big hall in Detroit, you know, and they were doing all this work. And, and actually, Rick's dad was doing all the work. And he used to tell me, he, he, he told me, he was like, man, they said they were out there, like, on the telephone, you know, poles and outside and doing all this stuff. He goes, you know, at, at the time, he goes, I was looking at them like, what are they doing? He goes, but now I know they were, like, setting up bugs and, you know, you know wires and stuff. So the feds yeah. could tape record them. Yeah, yeah. So they were doing, you know, but. So basically, you know, Rick got recruited by the agents and then, you know, his dad working with his dad. So, you know, and uh, so that's kind of how he got involved with the Currys. And then through his information and through those wiretaps that him and his dad, you know, helped set up, you know, they got the Currys, they took them down, you know, and they, like, they played guilty for 20 years, you know, Johnny and his brother. Mm -hmm. But but they took the whole crew down, you know, and that was kind of like white boy Rick's entrance to the drug world. You know, but another right, another right. real critical thing that happened, you know, because after, you know, stuff started happening, you know, Johnny Curry, you know, he got pretty much, he got a clue, 
you know, and, and word came out that even like when White Boy Rick, when he was like, what, you know, in the crew, but, you know, just a little underling, maybe when he was like 15 yeah. or 16 or something, you know, word came out. They said, you know, rumors were circulating that he was a snitch, wow. you know, even back then on the street. So, you know, Rick, Rick got shot, you know, by somebody in the crew. But then what the feds did, instead of, you know, pulling him out, you know, because yeah. he got shot, they went to him, you know, with his dad, and they told him, they said, look, we're going to say you shot yourself with a gun. We're going to get you insurance settlement, which, you know, back then he got 30 or 40 grand, which was, you know, pretty good for somebody living in the hood. And we're going to send you back in, you know, because now when we uh, send you back in, you know, they're going to be like, there's no way he's a snitch, you know, because nobody got arrested for him getting shot. So, right. you know, the FBI, they pulled that move, and they kind of like, that like really enhanced his reputation because, you know, the criminal underworld, if something happens to you and then, you know, you don't say anything about it, you know, that kind of in hand, they're like, okay, this dude's good. And especially with him, a, a young white kid in a, in a African American, you know, dominated criminal underworld, that kind of like really, you know, when they sent him back in like that and he was like, man, why'd you do that? He's like, man, I, you know, I'm not no snitch. I mean, he has to right. believe him in. So that was like sure. perfect for his cover, you know, but yeah. that, that enabled him, you know, to, do the work and do the stuff he had to do and, and to get them busted Word. and bring that whole case about. I mean, after the, after the Curry brothers, did he um, start working with Demetrius Holloway and uh, Maserati Rick as far as like um, organizational wise? No, nah, I mean, they, they blowed up like it was some big partnership and stuff like that from, but from what Rick has told me, you know, he did, he did do some stuff with Demetrius Holloway. I think he said that he got his first key you know, coke from Demetrius Holloway, you know, and, and there was some interaction there. But, uh, you know, Maserati Rick, he didn't really do business with Maserati Rick. You know, he, he knew these guys, you know, and, and he, yeah. he he considered Demetrius Holloway, you know, like somebody that he hung out with. But he didn't really hang out with Maserati. You know, but they were in a lot of the same places. You know, they were both kind of like these, you know, young dope boy celebrities in the city. So, you know, a lot of people – lumped them together, and even, even though they were associates and they knew each other and they saw each other around, it's not like they were partners or doing business, and even even his relationship with Demetrius Holloway, like, you know, he did some business with the dude, but it wasn't something major. He was more like a friend with him, you know, hanging out, you know, going to the stores, you know, or, or going to fights or, or, you know, pissing games, stuff like that. No doubt, no doubt. Um, what was the alleged beef with uh, the best friends, where uh, I guess one of the uh... White boy Rick's, one of his best friends got killed, I guess. Yeah, well, you know, that the whole thing with best friends, you know, because best friends at one time, best friends were like enforcers, basically, you know, for, for Maserati Rick, you know. Yeah. But then as it, as it went on, the best friends, like the, the Brown brothers, you know, and then they, they recruited uh, Nathaniel Boone Craft too. You know, he was their main hitman. But they just they started instead of protecting, you know, they're getting paid to protect drug dealers, but they were like, they would take that money. And then they decided we're just going to go kill the drug dealers, you know, take their money and take their business. So, you know, when, when they kind of started doing that, you know, there were certain people that might be off limits, but I found out, you know, in the course of this documentary, because I'm doing a documentary too called white boy, that's going to be out in 2017. And it, it, you know, it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be on something like Netflix or, you know, Showtime or HBO possibly. But uh, okay. through the course yeah. of this, we've done we've done extensive interviews with Nathaniel Boone Crass. And, uh, you know, because of the convoluted scene and everything, you know, he said that basically the order, 
you know, the order to kill white boy Rick came from cops. You know, wow. and they they yeah, and yeah. some of the cops, some of the corrupt cops in Detroit, they used to use best friends, you know, and, and Nate Boone Craft, their hitman, as basically you know assassination squads to get rid of who they wanted to or who wasn't paying them or who they had a problem with. Because man, it, everything in Detroit back in that time, man, it, it it's like a, a, I would say almost, you know, the whole you you could almost say, I mean, there there's no proof of this, but I mean, you could always say, you know, if you're talking conspiracy, it's like what the feds do to us. You know, when they put us in prison, they take all these different facts and tie them together. You know, but if you want to talk about conspiracy, man, Mayor Coleman Young, his whole regime was just like this big criminal empire. Right. You know, that they were, they were getting money. Right. You know, they were running the city of Detroit for, you know, however, you know, 20, 30 years, and he had all these people under him. You know, and really, that's that's the reason why White Boy Rick is is still in prison today, because wow. you know, at one at one time, you know, he knew a lot of those people, but you know, the people the people on the criminal side, they only know by your actions. You know, the people on the legal side, they knew everything. They knew he was a foreman. They knew he was working with the FBI. They knew he was playing both sides. You know, in, yeah. in all the stuff he was doing. So they knew what he knew, you know, because like, like, like anybody who's an informant or a snitch that's, that's working both sides in the drug game, you know, some stuff they're going to tell and stuff some, some stuff they're not going to tell. They're going to, you know, they're going to tell on the people that are their enemies or that, you know, they want to get rid of. You know, people that are helping them make money or they might be scared of, they might not tell on. So, you know, knowing that, you know, a lot of the corrupt cops, you know, they were trying to get white boy Rick killed. And when they couldn't get him killed, eventually, you know, they set him up with the eight kilos and they gave him life, you know, but this is after they cut him loose. But basically right. it was like a situation because when it came to light, you can't use a juvenile as an informant, you know, so they were doing right. something illegal. So after it was going on, you know, and I guess some higher ups in the regime found out, you know, and they're like, man, we can't do this. And then eventually Rick trying to get out of that state system, state sentence, you know, yeah. when, when, the feds came back to him, you know, and they had a corruption case, you know, he, he helped set him up, you know, and gain information and, and help get him in and vouch for somebody, you know, and they had the biggest, uh, you know, the federal government had the biggest police corruption case, you know, ever in Detroit, like around 91. Yeah. Yeah. And, you, and white boy Rick was instrumental in that too, you know, but wow. it was the same people that at one time were trying to kill him. So, you know, I mean, you, you call it what you want. You know, everybody's going to say this, everybody's going to say that. Not like I'm defending white boy Rick or I'm not. You know, I, I have I have numerous people, you know, snitch on me and, and get out of prison sentences or do like two or three years while I did 25. So I know that what yeah. that feels like. But, you know, I say, I say looking at the whole situation, I mean, dude was a kid, the way he was brought into it. I mean, it's just, it's just a messed up situation, man. And, and the, the evil people and all this, Yes. You know, the federal government with with the drug laws and these federal agents that will do anything to make a case or, or to seize people's money. You know, they, they, they manufacture this stuff, and, and, and they use people like White Boy Rick, send them in, and then when they're done with them, they throw them away in the trash and try to bury, bury their, uh, you know, their mistake or what they don't want to come out in prison. Yeah. Can you, can you explain the 650 law? I know it not, doesn't exist anymore, but why is it still uh, held on White Boy Rick? And what is it, the 650 well, law? 
Well, the 650 Lifer Law, I think it was in the, the late 70s, they, they came up with a law in Michigan, you know, trying to be tough on crime. And Democrats, too, that's what everybody thinks, like Republicans are tough on crime. It's Democrats are the, always the ones that do all these big crime bills. But it was a Democrat in Michigan, you know, the governor, and they made the 650 Lifer Law, which meant if you got caught with 650, 650 grams of cocaine or more, you got a life sentence. You know, it triggered a mandatory life sentence. So, yeah, so uh, eventually, like, it, it was a law for, like, 13 years, I think. Like, 13 years it got repealed. You know, and when it got when it got repealed, you know, which is crazy, they still haven't, you know, that made white boy Rick eligible for parole. But they only had one, you're supposed to have parole hearing in Michigan, like, every four years, and he had one parole hearing his whole bid in 2003 and he's been locked up 28 years so that just shows you you know they've had people behind the scenes the whole time you know working because i mean for whatever reason if they feel like you know he you know brought the feds in and messed up something that some people there were getting money you know people in government or you could even take it as far as uh you know gil hill who was like the the main homicide detective you know under mayor coleman young you know, he, yeah. he might have thought he was uh, Mayor Coleman's young successor and all the stuff from White Boy Rick, you know, and all the other stuff with him, you know, coming out from him being involved with the drug game so heavy, you know, in the, yeah. during his time when he was a homicide chief. You know, he, he feels like, or he felt, I mean, he's dead now too, but, you know, yeah. he felt like White Boy Rick was the cause of a lot of that stuff because if, if you think about it, and this makes perfect sense, if White Boy Rick, wasn't involved in that criminal black underworld, you know, a lot of the mainstream wouldn't even care. The only reason they care is because a young white kid, you know what I'm saying? That just shows you yeah. how the media and our country is, how how they focus stuff. And that's why he, Gil Hill probably hated this dude, white boy Rick, because he was like, man, this dude's getting all these attentions, you know, blowing me up, having all these investigations yeah. on me, even though they don't have any proof. And he's jacking off my career because I want to be mayor. So, you know, that's, yeah. that's how stuff happens, man. And then people hold people accountable or they want to get retribution. You know, in the streets, if you hold somebody accountable, you're just going to go, go take a gun and blow their brains out. You know, if you're if you're a cop or if you're in the legal system, you might do that if you can get away with it. But if not, you know, you're going to use the, the criminal justice machinery, you know, that's at your uh, disposal, and you're going to you're going to get people that way. Yeah. How how um when White Boy Rick started dating Kathy Volson. I guess it was the the uh, the mayor's niece or whatever. Yeah. Was it was that a direct violation of like uh from the you know how he's always doing federal work? Was it like a direct violation of the federal agreement to like do like to start? You know what I no, mean? No, like, because you know you, you know Kathy Bolson, she was Johnny Curry's wife first. So okay. Rick, Rick had known her. Rick had known her for a couple of years. He'd been around her, but you know then Johnny went to prison. You know, but then. You know, Kathy Volson Curry, her dad was Willie Volson and and he was he was the brother of the mayor's wife. You know, and he right. was known as like a big criminal and, and a and a big fixer and stuff like that. So I know I know what you're saying, but with with everything how it is and there you know, all the criminality going on in Detroit, even with, you know, uh so called government officials. Yes, you know sir. what I'm saying? Yeah, a lot of that's not going to come to play, you know. And uh, you know, I think 
you know, a lot of people that, that find themselves in that situation, they're really opportunists. And uh, I don't know Catherine Wilson Curry personally, but, you know, from everything that I've seen, you know, she was kind of an opportunist. You know, she was trying to do drugs. She was trying to get an opportunity, to, you know, to do drugs or to be with someone that could get her drugs. You know, she had an opportunity right. to make money. She was trying to do that. If she was having an opportunity, you know, to, uh, you know, get out of something by telling on people, she was doing that. I mean, it's, it's all been documented in the newspaper, so. You know, but there, there's a lot of people like that, not just to put that on her specifically. Yes, sir. Wow. Um, how corrupt, I mean, I mean, you already mentioned it a little bit, but how corrupt was the Detroit Police Department back then? Um, was it? Oh, I mean, I, I, I mean, I think it goes, it goes all the way back to, you know, the, the first dude we talked about who, you know, he was actually, he worked for the police, and then yeah. he decided that he can make more money as a criminal and still use his police sources. So I'm saying, you know, this, this dude, you know, he set the trend. And, uh, you know, I mean, maybe there's still corruption today. I, I don't know, man. But, you know, I, I got I got friends in Detroit, and they tell me, man, there's, like, murders in, in Detroit all day, all the time. There's so many murders in Detroit right now, they, they don't even print them all in the newspaper. You know what I'm saying? Because yeah. yeah, dudes yeah. told me, like, dudes got killed or whatever. Like, I was researching articles or doing this or doing that. And you can't even you can't even find the murder. It's not listed in the paper because there's so many murders, they don't even list them in the paper unless it's, like, you know, unless, you know, just regular murders, they don't even list them. They don't even write a news account unless it's something, you know, special happens. So, yeah. I mean, that just goes to show, man, that uh, I think the corruption, you know, they just had that uh, big water thing. I mean, the, the corruption, it, it's through and through in Detroit, in politics, and, you know, I'd say it's one of the more corrupt states. I mean, I think a lot of our government, you know, has its pockets of corruption, but, you know, Detroit, like, especially with that thing, you know, the water and the people, I mean, what, yeah, are, you, what yeah. are you doing? You're, like, you're like killing people, man, with, with stuff that, you know, you're supposed to be donating money and, and time to. You know, where, where's that money going? It's going in their pockets. That's why. Because they think, you know, people don't care or, or people won't. You know, certain segment of the population, you know, they feel like they don't have a voice, so they're going to do whatever they want to them. You know, they're going to take any, you know, expense they want, you know, to make money off of them. That's crazy. Um, what is a, When is the white boy uh, Rick's parole? Isn't it coming up in 2017? December. December. Yeah, but we're going to have this documentary out before then. Okay, cool. Cool. Yeah. That sounds yeah. Cool. Um Yep. Uh, and then I'm doing I'm yeah. doing I'm doing a, I'm doing an oil history too. I'm doing an oil history, which is it, it's going to be a book of the white boy Rick and the whole era, but it's going to it's going to be told in a lot of the other people's voices. You know, like people that we interviewed for the documentary, other people I yeah. interviewed in prison. You know, even interview white boy Rick. So I'm doing like a a put together oil history right now that's going to be coming out next year too. It's gonna it's going to be coming out like in tandem with the documentary. That's what's up. That's cool. That's going to be good. Hey, yo, yep. Charlie, you got a, a question? Um, yeah, during uh, White Boy Vic's whole trial, they never mentioned that he was working for the police. And um, I was wondering why that, why once they found that out, because I don't think his lawyer even knew, did he? Or did you? Look, check this out. I'm, I'm going to tell you how deep this goes. We're talking about corruption. All right. He had this one lawyer named William Buffalino, who his dad had used and stuff like that. And he had put all these motions in before the trial to suppress evidence and this and that, right? And then 
you know, Kathy Folsom Curry, you know, then the, the fix was in, you know, with, with the, I mean, it goes all the way, Coleman Young, Joe Hill, whatever. They put the fix in. They sent Kathy Volson Curry to him. And, and she told him, she said, look, man, my uncle said, get these lawyers, Ed Bill and Samuel, Samuel Gardner. You know, she said, get these lawyers and, and, and everything will disappear. You know, but what they did, they were putting the fix in on him because then those lawyers, that's what they did. They said, uh, you know, they didn't, they knew he was informant, but they didn't bring it up because they weren't working for a white boy rig. They were working for fucking Coleman Young. You know, Samuel Garner was like Coleman Young, like attorney for a long time. And then, you know, Ed Bell, he had a lot of stuff. So like I say, man, it's, it's all this corrupt business and the, all these people were connected and they basically uh, shafted white boy rig. You know, and, and you know, I'm, I'm going to be honest and say him always jumping out there and, and, and speaking up and doing that and doing this hasn't really helped his cause, you know, over the years. But, you know, I mean, they, they did. They shafted him, man. So there's no excuse for that because, you know, these aren't criminals that shafted him. These are like, you know, supposed legitimate members of society. But they're not legitimate. You know, they're, they're as dirty as the criminals. And I, I think, in effect, they're dirtier because the criminal, you know, he's going to let you know he's a criminal. He has a gun or whatever. You know, these people, they're going to act like they're sheep. But really, they're they're wolves in sheep's clothing because they're going to hide under the the uh, fabric of you know legitimacy to to hide all their criminal you know and dirty deeds. That's awful. You know that should be a mistrial. That that's an unfair yeah. trial. Yeah, it is. I mean, but you yeah. know that happens a lot, man. I've seen that happen a yeah. lot. You know, in different cases. I I see dudes like it might be a dude. He's a, he's like an underling and and the boss. You know the organization gets him gets him a lawyer, but then the lawyer is working for the boss in his interest. He's not working for this dude, so he doesn't care if they shaft him or give him ten or twenty years. You know if it's going to lessen the load on the boss who's paying the bills. You know, so people do a lot of uh, shifty stuff like that in this game, man. You know, both on the criminal side and the legal side. Now the officer Gil Hill, the, the late Detroit police officer, um, is it true that he put a hit out on Rick, or is that even able to be proven. yeah no he he put a yeah he put a hit out on Rick Nate you know he did offered one hundred twenty five thousand to Nate Boone Craft you know Nate Boone Craft when White Boy Rick was going you know Nate Boone Craft was a hitman for the best friends when White Boy Rick was going to trial all that time in the eighty eight in eighty eight right he was sitting across you know from the courthouse with a, a rifle and a scope you know what I'm saying Damn. looking for opportunity. Yeah. To, to whack him, but he never got the opportunity, you know, because it was like a three-ring circus and all the news media and stuff like that. But, you know, up until, you know, they, they even tried, at one time, they were even going to try to kill him in prison, you know. But, uh, wow. yeah, eventually, you know, a lot of people think that, that that was a best friend's beef, but, you know, really, you know, and even, even the like the, uh, the Freaky Steve thing, the Freaky Steve yeah. thing was, uh, you know, it, it was over a girl, man. You know, and it wasn't even, they got Rock and Red from Best Friends was locked up for that murder, but he didn't even commit it. You know, this other dude named Mark Patrick was the one who committed that, you know, murder. Yeah. You know, but he got yeah. he got killed later. Reggie Reggie Brown's brother, Boogaloo, killed him later Boy, for causing now, his brother to get in prison. Since, uh, since it's, like, well known that white boy Rick worked with the, um, uh, police and everything is he in general population or is he in some kind of protective 
type. Oh no, he, he 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 he's like in a, in a protective yard. You know, like they call it like a sensitive needs or whatever. Like where he was locked up, you know, they'll have like police officers will be locked and stuff. You know, I mean, it's it's a population yard, but it's like, you know, it's like a PC yard. Right, right, right. You know, wow. high profile people, people can't make it on the mainland. Wow, you know? and you know, I I just want to let you know, I read prison stories. And um, okay, awesome. yeah, that yeah, that was that was that was um different, you know, how you went through stories and stories. So that was like over the course of like two years, wasn't it? Yeah. Yep. My first two years in prison. Wow. Uh, so I'm I'm glad I'm glad you made that decision in the end to um stay true to yourself and not you know you know do that final hit that you promised. I know it's important to be a man of your word, but you know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You you took you took well, the advice hey. of a very person that sent you out there. You know. Uh, you know you know when when you get to any any crux or any situation in life, man. You you got to decide. I mean, I'm, I say all power for the dudes. If you want to be gangster and you want to do this and you want to do that, but you're going to end up doing life in prison. I got a bunch of dudes doing life in prison, and they're in all the USPs, and, and they got to maintain that, you know, lifestyle and, and live like that. And it's like, no, I wasn't looking for that, man. I was looking for something different. I want to be out creating, doing stuff like I'm doing now. You know, I got I got my comic books out. I got four comics. I'm about to put a graphic novel out, crime comics. I got other documentaries and, and film stuff I'm working on. You know, so I'd I'd rather be out here hustling legitimately, you know, than being like that, you know, die hard, you know, ride or die gangster. Which you know, it sounds good when you're young. It sounds good when you're 18 and 19. But when you're a 45 year old man with life in the penitentiary, it doesn't sound so good. I I can tell you that, and every homeboy that I have that's in on that situation will tell you that. Right. So. Yeah, because you know that's that's real. That's real life, man. It's not a video. It's not a music video. It's real life, man. So, hey, yo, fresh. You got a question? Yeah. Can y'all hear me? Yeah. All right. Yeah. What's going on, man? Look, seeing that you know a lot about you know the Detroit area. Did you know anything about Frank Matthews? Yeah, I wrote. I actually wrote a chapter about Frank Matthews in my book, Street Legends, Volume Two. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so look, um, by him um, working, uh, be, becoming as big as he did, you know, it was rumored that he had faked his death, and, but they were saying that either, you know, either he had disappeared or the mafia had got hold to him. Knowing what you know, what, what's your take on that? I don't know, man. That's a hard one, man. If if you look, I mean, it's it's a real romantic notion to think this. Frank Matthews got away with $20 million and it's still out there somewhere today. I mean, that's just, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's awesome story. It's a romantic notion. I mean, I would really like to think that that's what happened. But, you know, given his, his, his beef with the mob and, and then his legal problems and then, you know, because even, like I'm going to tell you, even dudes like Frank Matthews or dudes operating on that level, I mean, they, they have police in their pocket, man. So, I mean, call it what you want call it working with the police, you know, like Whitey Bulger did the same, same thing. You know, I mean, it, yeah. when is the line, you know? I mean, because right. when you're off at that level, you got place in your pocket, man. But information is being traded both ways. I mean, you can guarantee that, you know, knocking off rivals or whatever. But, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people felt with the trouble that he was in, especially the mafia, because he'd already had beasts with the mob, you know, about bringing in the heroin. So I think, uh, you know, him facing all that time, 
you know, and with the mob being his enemies, and they already know that he has a relationship with police and has police in his pockets in numerous different cities. You know, it, it does make perfect sense, man, that, you know, they caught him. You know, they finally caught him slipping. You know, he had all this other stuff to worry about. He was trying to get ready. He was trying to get out of there. Maybe he was even using some mob connections to help him do something, you know? Right. And you know, the, you know the way the mob operates. The mob, you know, they're going to smile on your face and, and send your buddy in to kill you. You know, right. that's how they do it. So, I mean, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I'd like to say think he's, he's out there somewhere, but, you know, I, I could see something like that happening, you know, so you know, no, nobody's ever going to know unless they find a body and they can identify it, you know, but, yeah. you know, who knows, man? I mean, look at look what the mob they did with Jenny Hoffa. He just disappeared. So, you know, they can make yeah. it happen. Right. right. And I got another one. Uh, now, to deal with uh, Kwame Kilpatrick, you know, they had scandalized him for a while, you know, when he was the, the, the mayor of Detroit. And then he was able to tell his side of the story. So, well, what's your take on Kwame? Yeah, I don't know. I haven't really, I haven't read, you know, I mean, I, I've seen, like, the headlines and stuff, but I, I've never really researched his his story. So, I mean, I, I couldn't even begin to give you, you know, a, a you know, cultured or, or educated answer because, I haven't put the research in to even, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I, I know the yeah, name, yeah. and I know he, he went to prison, but I don't even know, you know, I know he was a mayor of Detroit, but, you know, it's like anything. Like like I say, that that could go into the whole thing, you know, with all the corruption in, in Detroit, and, you know, maybe he was dirty, maybe he wasn't dirty, maybe he was unfairly targeted, maybe not. But, you know, Detroit has a history of corrupt politicians, and the feds, you know, have a history of targeting the corrupt politicians in Detroit. So, you know, if they're watching him and he slipped up or he did this or did that, I mean, I don't know. Right. You know? Yeah, because they did a good article on him on the, in the Don Diva magazine. That's why I found out when they told his fan, you know, if I get a chance, I can shoot you the link to it so you'll know which issue that it was. Yeah. Yeah, I remember the article. I just, I didn't, yeah, I didn't read it. You know, some, oh. it's like anything, like some stuff, you know, some gangster stuff I'm interested in, some, you know. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that was a story. I mean, yeah, that was a story for me. I mean, it, it didn't really have a lot of interest for me. Right. Yeah. Okay. Kwame got caught up in a Bernie Madoff type scheme, but he wasn't the head of it. Um, right. Yeah. He, was, he was already up to his neck when he, uh, when he figured out that what he was having everybody invest their money in wasn't real. And then the guy just up and left town and he was left holding the bag. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you gotta be careful when you're involved in stuff like that. Yeah. Hey, because uh, yeah, it, it will, they will yeah. send something on you. That's what they do. Yeah. And I got one more question. You know, what what what's your take on the, the underworld nowadays versus the way it was back then, as far as you know how they was able to get away with stuff and the political crackdown on it. Um. I, I think everything is harder to do now. I mean, it, I think nowadays, man, you, you look at sometimes, like, even with the mafia, have their heyday, and you have these really big, you know, notorious figures, and then, you know, with the, the African-American community, you know, and the, and the crack cocaine, and you just have these legends with these people that, you know what I'm saying, you know, made so much money so fast, and I, I just think the way, you know, like, I even look all the time, I read a lot of true crime stuff, and I, I read a lot of stuff about the cases, but you know, I, I like searching, you know, because sometimes I'm searching. I'm looking for, like, these magnetic, charismatic figures 
you know, dudes like a, a white boy Rick or a Maserati Rick or, you know, like a Supreme from the Supreme team or like a Wayne Carey from D.C., you know, or like a boy George from New York. I, I look for dudes like this because I like to write about dudes like this. And right. I'm, a lot of these recent cases, because there's cases all the time. They're indicting 100 people here, 50 people here, 100. You know, it's crazy. Yeah. But yeah. I don't see any of these charismatic type of dudes, man. So, I, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if it's the times. I don't know if it's the younger generations. I don't know if you could establish yourself more back then and, and flaunt it. You know, or I, I don't know if, you know, a lot of dudes that are in the game today, they tell me dudes are just hustling backwards now. You know, they, they don't even flip 10 grand. You know, dudes out yeah. hustling and can't even buy Jordans and stuff. So, I mean, I, I don't know what it is. I, I'm, I'm not, I don't prescribe to that theory that, you know, all the time, oh, back then, back then. But, you know, I, I, I can just speak upon, you know, now trying to look for these, uh, you know, type of figures that attract attention and, uh, you know, in recent cases, and, and I, I just don't see it, you know, like it was well, you in, know what? You know, like in the, um, in the 80s. Right now, I think what's happening that the government hasn't caught on to yet is the dark web. Right now, you can buy any anything you want, from prescription drugs to mushrooms to powder cocaine to crack, and there's a dark web and then there's the bitcoin thing which i really don't understand but i think i think it's going to be years those people that understand that are going to be making money for years before everybody catches on to what that is hey uh hey mr ferranti where can people reach you at um you know i got my website gorillaconvict.com it's www.g-o-r-i-l-l-a-c-o-n-v-i-c-t Dot com. That has, like, all my, my gangster and street stuff, and you can order all my books and comics there. And then I got uh, yeah. another website, SethBarante.com, where you can see it has some newer stuff, like some of the teasers from, you know, the White Boy Rick documentary. It's it's more for, like, some of my film stuff and the, the comic books. So the yeah, Relic Convict is, like, you know, mostly the books and, and all the stories. There's a ton of information on there about, you know, gangsters from all over and, and articles and stuff written by, you know, guys who are in – prison right now doing life and stuff like that and uh you know the Seth Ferrante has like my the film ventures that I've been working on since I've been out Word. that's what's up man well thank you for your time man uh hope we right. get you back Great. on again you know what I mean all right holler at me man I, I appreciate it definitely thank you very much all right peace all mm. right take care y'all one